The essence of repentance is a willing submission of our rebel hearts to God and casting ourselves, as it were, before his feet, begging for his mercy and his grace. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing our current series titled War and Peace, Learning to Deal with Conflict. He has part 11 for us on today's broadcast. You know, if you're a Christian, how do you purify your heart from sinful thoughts and divided loyalty? Being honest, how much are you really resisting your urge to fight and quarrel and to instead live in peace with others? Throughout this series, we've been exploring what James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10 reveals about conflict. Today, Tom will begin to look at how believers are to view our sin and what to do about it. But before we begin today's program, here's Tom with some opening thoughts. Tom? James is teaching us that whether we are true believers who are guilty of some sort of an ongoing pattern of sin in our lives, or whether we are those who never truly bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, never having accepted Him as Lord, the way back is essentially the same. It's to humble ourselves in genuine repentance before God. And in the passage in James 4 we're studying together, there are a series of commands that show us in powerful, specific ways the way home, the way back to God in humble, heartfelt repentance. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's open our Bibles now and join Tom Pennington with today's message on The Word Unleashed. Let me remind you that the theme of James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, is dealing with the issue of arguing and fighting the sinful conflicts that are so much a part of our lives here in this world. And in this passage, James outlines for us three very practical steps for dealing with that conflict in a way that honors God. We've gone through each of these three great steps carefully. Let me remind you of them. The first step to deal with sinful conflict in our lives is to identify the true source of conflict. We saw this in the first three verses of chapter 4. And the true source that lies behind arguing and fighting is our pleasures, or more Exactly, it's the craving of our hearts for those sinful pleasures and the fulfillment of them. When we come into conflict with others, it's because they stand in the way of what we want. That's what James wants us to see. And if we're going to overcome sinful conflict, we have to understand that the true source of conflict does not lie in the issue that we're fighting about, nor does it lie in the person with whom we're fighting, but ultimately it lies within our own hearts because of what we want and that not being fulfilled. The second practical step for dealing with sinful conflict in our lives is found in verses 4 and 5, and it's magnify the real sin behind conflict. You see, when we look back as far as we can look, as we've looked so far anyway, at what lies behind this sin of quarreling and arguing, we find the sin of spiritual adultery. James begins verse 4 by saying, adulteresses. He calls us adulteresses. 
You see, when we are engaged in a pattern of sinful arguing and fighting in our lives, it shows that we love the pleasures of this world, the fulfillment of those sinful pleasures, more than we love God. And that at its heart is, as James says, friendship with the world, enmity with God, and spiritual adultery. The third practical step that we saw outlined in this passage is in verses 6 through 10, and it's identified the right solution to conflict. Understand exactly what the solution is. And the solution, as we've seen, is simply one word. It's the word grace. Verse 6 says, But he, that is God, is giving a greater grace. Folks, whatever our sinful struggles may be, our only hope is grace from God. Grace. Grace that will forgive us. Grace that will give us full restoration to fellowship with God. And grace that will empower us for future obedience. The problem is, the very thing we need, which is grace, comes only on one condition. And that condition for receiving grace is humility. James makes this point by quoting Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, at the end of verse 6 there. Therefore it, that is the scripture says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James wants us to know that pride not only puts us on a collision course with other people, we see that all the time, but pride also puts us on a collision course with God himself. But on the other hand, God is constantly giving grace to the humble. It's hard to imagine James stressing the priority of humility any more than that. The very thing that we most need to deal with our sin, both for forgiveness, for restoration of fellowship, and for future obedience is grace, and the only way to get grace is through the virtue of humility. I was reminded this week of the Old Testament prophet Micah who stresses the priority of this virtue of humility. You remember in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, he says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, or loving loyalty, and to walk humbly with your God. That's what God requires. Augustine, the early church father, in one of his famous sayings, put it this way. He said, for those who would learn God's ways, humility is the first thing, humility is the second, and humility is the third. You've heard the little saying about real estate, that the key to real estate is location, location, and location. Well, the key to spiritual life in the kingdom of God is humility, humility, and humility. James points us to one of the bedrock laws of God's moral universe. You see, we can only come to benefit from God's grace through humility. So that immediately raises another crucial question, and that is, how is it that we can humble ourselves before God. We are all, by nature, proud. So how is it we can humble ourselves so that we can receive that grace? And the answer James gives us is very straightforward and very simple. We humble ourselves before God so that we can receive his grace by repentance. By repentance. 
the path that leads from sin and pride to humility is repentance. Now remember the flow of the passage here. James began by rebuking us for quarreling and fighting, for sinful arguments among ourselves. And then James explained that the source of that arguing is a heart that's intent on satisfying its own pleasures. And that means that the real sin at the heart level is loving our own pleasures more than we love God or spiritual adultery. But now, James, as it were, peels another layer off the onion to take us to the true center, the real heart of our problems, the root that lies beneath spiritual adultery and ultimately of all sin is pride. Because ultimately, every time we sin, we have concluded in our own minds that we know better than God knows. We're making a deliberate choice against him. So that means that whether we are the sinning children of God or whether we are complete strangers to him, let me say that again, whether you sit here guilty of a pattern of sin of some kind in your life, and you're a child of God, you know you belong to God, but you have continually engaged yourself in some pattern of sin, or whether you sit here this morning never having really bowed your knee to Jesus Christ, never having accepted him as Lord and Savior, either way, the way home is essentially the same. It is to humble ourselves in genuine repentance before God. And in James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, we have a series of commands. And these commands flow out of the proverb that occurs in verse 6. And as we will see, this series of commands is an exposition of humble, heartfelt repentance. Amazingly, this passage is practically identical to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 9. What that probably means, as one commentator says is that what James tells us here is a widespread Christian call to repentance. In other words, in the early church, when you wanted to explain repentance to someone, you laid out this path. You said, this is what it looks like. Now, when you look at verses 7 through 10, the structure of these verses is very deliberate by James, and it's also very clear. Let me map it out for you before we look at the specifics. Notice that verses 7 through 10 begin and end with a summary statement. Verse 7, submit therefore to God. Notice the word therefore links this command back to the proverb in verse 6. Then notice verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. Now, it's clear that this command also is linked back to the proverb of verse 6 because the verb humble in verse 10 And the noun humble in verse 6 are different forms of the same Greek word. These two statements, submit yourselves to God in verse 7, humble yourselves in verse 10, are essentially synonymous. They serve as bookends supporting the rest of the description of repentance. And in these two summary statements in verses 7 and 10, we have captured for us the essence of repentance in two words. Look at them for a moment. The word submit, and in verse 10, the word humble. 
These two words are essentially synonyms that begin and end the passage and explain for us, in the simplest terms, a sketch of true biblical repentance. Now, the Greek word in verse 7 that's translated as submit literally means, and listen carefully to this, it literally means to put in order under. It's a word that describes willingly submitting your will to the will of someone in authority over you. In secular Greek, it was used of a soldier who willingly submitted his will to the will of his commanding officer. He submitted himself to his commanding officer. That's why Douglas Moo, writing of verse 7, says this in his commentary, to submit to God means to place ourselves under his lordship and therefore to commit ourselves to obey him in all things. And when you come to verse 10, the word humble, this word simply means to make oneself low. It was often used in the Septuagint of literally making yourself low, of prostrating yourself before someone recognizing your utter need and absolutely throwing your body flat before another person. Those attitudes are the heart of repentance. The essence of repentance is a willing submission of our rebel hearts to God and casting ourselves, as it were, before his feet, begging for his mercy and his grace. That is a picture in those two words of what repentance really is. Now, sandwiched between those two bookends are those two summaries are a series of imperatives. And this series of commands or imperatives is grouped deliberately by James into three couplets. So think of submit yourself to God and humble yourselves as summaries and bookends, and all those commands in between are grouped into sets of twos, couplets. Couplet number one is resist the devil and he will flee from you, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Couplet number two is cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Couplet number three is be miserable and mourn and weep, let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Now here's the key to understanding this passage. Each of those couplets provides us with a fresh insight into genuine biblical repentance. Each couplet tells us how to submit to God, how to humble ourselves before him. Those three couplets outline for us three components of repentance. Three components of genuine repentance. Let's look at them together. The first component of genuine repentance is found in the first couplet, and we could summarize it this way. Turn your heart to God. Turn your heart to God. Notice the end of verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now let's look at those two together. Together they tell us we must turn toward God. Notice the first one, resist the devil. This simply means to refuse to bow to Satan's authority. It's a call to change allegiances. You see, what James is saying is that when we are sinning, it's as if we have changed our alliances from God to Satan. And repentance begins by severing our alliances with Satan, by saying, I will not live in his ways and in his paths anymore. 
and I'm going to turn instead and realign myself with God. I'm going to turn my heart toward God. The word resist here, by the way, is is not an offensive word, an offensive word. It is a defensive word. It means to stand against, to cut off the loyalties that we have had with Satan, to cut off our alliances with Satan, to stand against him, to make our alliances with God clear. Now, Paul gives us a graphic picture of what it means to stand against Satan or resist Satan in Ephesians chapter 6. Turn there for a moment with me. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God. He gives us a picture of resisting Satan, the picture of an ancient soldier putting on his armor in preparation for battle. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able, here it is, to stand firm against the schemes or the methodologies of the devil. For our struggle is not against people. Folks, the enemy is never people, but rather against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. In other words, our true battle as believers is against Satan and his hierarchy, his structure. Therefore, verse 13, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able, here it is, to resist to stand against in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. And then he tells us specifically how this is done. Verse 14, stand firm, therefore, and take on these various pieces of armor, having girded your loins with truth. In the ancient world, of course, people, the men wore flowing robes, and if it was time for war, you needed to tuck those robes up and get them out of the way so that you could do battle. We're to tuck them in. And here he says, having girded your loins with truth, perhaps better, truthfulness, or a sincere commitment to the fight. He says, be genuine in your commitment to battle. Then he says in verse 14 again, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Here, righteousness probably refers to that practical righteousness that comes from obedience to the word of God. We can resist Satan by obeying the truth of God, putting on true righteousness. He goes on to say, And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, we move by means of the good news of peace with God. That protects us in our forward movement. Good news of genuine peace, the cessation of hostilities with God. He goes on to say, Take the shield of faith. Here, faith is probably not a body of doctrine that we believe, but rather simple trust in God. Believe God. Believe what he says, and it'll protect you from Satan. Take the helmet of salvation. Here, it's probably a reference to the hope of salvation or the assurance of salvation. We can be equipped to resist Satan by being confident of the promises of God, the truth of God, and standing in those truths of salvation. And then finally, he says, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, talking about the truth of Scripture. Those are our weapons. Now notice back in James chapter 4 that James gives this promise. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. If you stand against Satan with those weapons, he will 
flee. Resist the devil. Cut off your alliance with Satan and stand against him. Declare whose side you're really on. Now notice the second half of this first couplet is draw near to God. Draw near to God. The Septuagint often uses this Greek word that's translated draw near to describe approaching to God in worship. But I think more likely here, it's used like in Hosea chapter 12, verse 6, where we read, Therefore, return to your God, observe kindness and justice, and draw near, literally is what the Septuagint says, your God continually. It's turn your heart toward God. Let me show you a couple of other texts where this point is made. Turn to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, in the 5th century before Christ. Malachi writes, and in chapter 3, verse 7, he's urging the people of Israel to repent. Malachi chapter 3, verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. This is what he's calling us to do. Draw near to God. Return to God. Turn our hearts toward God. I love the way Psalm 145, verse 18 puts it. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. That's how you draw near God. You turn to God by calling out to him, by severing your alliance with Satan and his ways and turning toward God. Now, did you catch the implication of James chapter 4? Draw near to God. The implication is that when we are given to quarreling and arguing and therefore to the pursuit of pleasure and to friendship with the world and to spiritual adultery, we have created a very real separation between ourselves and God. You ever thought about your sin doing that? When you sin, there is a separation that occurs. It's not a physical distance. God is everywhere at every moment in time. He fills all of space that he's created but it is a separation of relationship, of fellowship. There is a literal distance that occurs between us and God when we are engaging ourselves in sin. But if we will draw near or return to God in repentance, then here is his amazing promise. Look at the end of verse 8. He will draw near to us. The middle of verse 8, actually. He will draw near to us to us. You know, I think we see a dramatic picture of this promise in the words of Christ in Luke 15, 20. You remember what Jesus said about the father's response to the prodigal son? Listen carefully. While he, that is the prodigal, was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. There's so much to be said here. I heard a couple of wonderful messages by John MacArthur on this passage. You need to know this, that in the ancient Middle East, it was absolutely shameful for a man, an adult man, to run in this way. And here God is pictured as running, running to the prodigal who's willing to turn back home who's willing to turn to God. That's God's response, by the way, to the repentant sinner. If you're here this morning and you have never come to faith in Jesus Christ, 
I can promise you this, that if you are willing to turn away from what you've been pursuing and to turn toward God, to draw near to God, if you will, as the prodigal did, come to your senses, realize where you've been, and be willing to return to your Creator, to acknowledge your sin, to seek forgiveness in the person of His Son, then He'll run to meet you. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 11 of his current series, War and Peace, Learning to Deal with Conflict. Tom will bring you part 12 on our next broadcast as he once again brings us to God's Word. And we do hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening. The Word Unleashed exists because God, in His Word, has given you every spiritual resource you need to grow in Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that the power of God's Word be unleashed in your life.